Coming up on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast, Dr. Nancy Lin wants to find a quick way to diagnose sarcoidosis. Yeah, so, you know, I'm really focused on genomics uh, in sarcoidosis. So that's looking at genomics is a big umbrella term for um, really gene research on a large scale. She's looking into our RNA to see why only certain people get sarcoidosis. But they're relatively new in science. You know, we've known about genes for a long time at this point, but microRNAs are definitely a, a, a more new discovery, a new molecule, and a new science. So there's still a lot that we don't know about what microRNAs do. It's all coming up on the award-winning FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome. This is episode 98 of the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin. This podcast is brought to you by Kinevent Sciences. Kinevent Sciences is researching a potential new drug for sarcoidosis, nemilumab, which inhibits one of the key proteins believed responsible for granuloma formation and persistence in sarcoidosis. And you should go back and listen to episode 69 of the FSR Sarkfighter podcast, where the kind of CEO, Bill Gerhardt, and also the director of patient advocacy, Rainy Rogers, discuss the status of nemilumab and how you, as a sarcoidosis patient, can participate in their phase two clinical trial, which is called Resolve Lung. And there is a link in the show notes if you'd like to click on that and get more information, and maybe you can participate and help advance the cause and maybe even help yourself at the same time. I am also excited to tell you a little bit about the FSR annual virtual global summit, which is coming up soon. If you are impacted by sarcoidosis and looking for answers, FSR is inviting patients, friends, family, clinicians, all to attend the 2023 global virtual summit. Find your community, find your life. Join FSR's biggest event of the year from November 3rd through the 5th, 2023, and you'll hear from leading experts, you'll connect with others, and get your sarcoidosis questions answered. So learn more and register now by visiting the FSR website, and I won't read that to you because it's got lots of slashes and dashes in it, but it's stopsarcoidosis.org slash summit-2023. There, I did read it to you, but the easy thing to do is just go to the show notes and click on it, or you can go to the FSR website. And I can also tell you that I'll be moderating one of the events this year, and there is a chance that I may be moderating another No Updates Yet on the second option, but I'll let you know if that comes to pass. I want to share that I had an amazing life experience since the last podcast. I had the chance to ride my bike with an Olympic gold medalist, and she is the person who has won more elite championships. By that, I would talk, I would mean world championships and Olympic medals than anyone in cycling 
history, male or female. Her name is Jennifer Valente, and as we now approach the Olympics in Paris in 2024, that is a name that you might be hearing a lot, Jennifer Valente, as she will be a favorite in several of the bike races that happen on the track, in the velodrome, if you will. Um, That's not as well, and of course cycling is sort of a niche sport anyway, and then the track cycling is a niche within a niche, but Jennifer is amazing. And she was here in Roanoke uh, because she does her racing and training with Virginia's Blue Ridge Team 2024, which is based uh, here in the Star City in Roanoke, Virginia. And But they do ride all over the country. And she has been winning races right and left uh, this year. She just won the World Championships back in August. And she does most of her training on a bicycle, not inside going in circles, but out on the road. And so I got a chance to do a segment for Channel 10. As you, as I've told you, I do a regular outdoor series for the station. It's called John Carlin's Outdoors, where I focus on our region's outdoors identity and all the ways you can integrate with the outdoors if you live here or if you visit here. But we call it in the Blue Ridge and beyond because occasionally I'll go outside the immediate region if there's something of interest that I want people to know about that is just a a good story for television. Well, this was in the Blue Ridge. It was right here in Roanoke. And so I got to do an interview with Jennifer Valente as we rode down the Greenway and through a local park. Um, had the chance to speak with her at length as well off of the bicycle. And she's I, she's either 27 or 28 years old, but just a genuine down-to-earth person. She's actually kind of shy, uh, but an amazing, obviously, cyclist and very smart. She's doing college part-time in and around her cycling career, but she is studying to be an engineer, so she is not taking her education lightly. Um, and she had her gold medal with her, which, you know, it's kind of funny. It's like, if you win an Olympic gold medal, what do you do with it? And I said, well, don't you display this at home? Doesn't your mother have it framed in her living room? You know, I mean, what do you do with it? And she says, no, I've got this kind of custom little case that they gave me, and I just carry my medals in this case. <laughs> and so she had a silver and a bronze, and the gold medal from her various events, and she let me hold the gold one, and yes, it is heavy. Uh, She won that in Tokyo, and uh, I asked her, well, is it solid gold? I mean, these are kind of stupid questions that you don't know. She said, well, it's gold-plated, but the thing about Tokyo is it was all about, uh, there was an underlying theme to the Tokyo Olympics about sustainability, and so they ground up a bunch of cell phone parts or other electronics and they integrated those into the middle of these metals so her gold medal the core of it is actually recycled cell phone parts is what she told me Um, which is you know that's a cool story in and of itself Uh, it certainly was heavy enough that I mean could have been lead for all I know but (laughs) Uh, it was beautiful, and uh, and she said it was just gold-plated. But uh, all I have to say is look out Paris because she is still in, you know, in her late 20s, right in the prime of her career, and still very motivated, still training very hard. And you know, I, I got to ride with her at a very slow 
pace because we were doing an interview while we were riding. We literally had a cameraman in a car in front of us. We were riding behind the car. We each had microphones on. And I got to ask her about her career and and all the different things, how she knew she wanted to be a cyclist. And uh, and she told me that, that her dad had been a cyclist, but she just knew that she wanted to be an Olympian and just started looking for the right sport and cycling sort of emerged as that sport. Very interesting backstory. And I'll get into all of that. And once we publish the story, once we air it on Channel 10, probably by the time we do the next podcast, uh, I'll be able to give you a link to that and you'll be able to go and watch it. Um, and by the way, you know, speaking of all of that, I hope you're enjoying this podcast, the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. And I want to ask you to help me reach more people so FSR can be as effective as possible. So it does help me reach more people and grow the show if you share it on your social media and also if you subscribe to it and then go to uh, and, and give it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use, as I like to say, wherever your pods are cast, as it were. But uh, just letting people know that, that we have a legitimate product here um, and that, you know, that, that there is a, a lot of research and background that goes into this show and, and that it really is surfacing a lot of information that probably is not being heard or seen elsewhere. So, uh, I like to think that we do have a, a, a unique opportunity here to share the, the sarcoidosis, sarcoidosis story. And you heard me say award-winning because FSR gave me that nice crystal award, back in the summer, uh, and, and people had said that this podcast uh, was the voice of sarcoidosis, and uh, I like to think of it that way. I think that is a great way uh, for, for me to think about it and for you to consume it and for FSR to, uh, to be able to, to spread the word through my volunteer association with FSR. Now, towards that end, I've had some emails from people who uh, have just learned that they have sarcoidosis and they're wondering how to deal with it, what's going on with their bodies. And, and I like it when people reach out to me because if I can't answer their questions, there is that whole team at FSR, the many volunteers who step up and help guide these folks. So I just want to share a quick email from a gentleman named Kevin Moore, a fellow SARC patient, who wrote to me out of the blue. He says, I've been listening to your FSR SARC Fighter podcast for several months now. It's been very inspirational to listen to all the unique stories, sarcoidosis research, updates, outreach, and the fundraising opportunities. And it helps to know that there are others out there who share in the sarcoidosis journey. And he says, I wanted to reach out to you and share my own story. Like most of the stories I've listened to on your podcast, Before I found myself at the Vanderbilt ICU with heart failure and fighting for my life and later diagnosed with cardiac sarcoidosis, something I had never even heard of. He says, I was a healthy 42-year-old male. I have never been in the hospital, lived a healthy lifestyle, exercised daily, and was an avid runner. Almost a year after my heart event, I am still coming to grasp with living with cardiac sarcoidosis and trying to live the best life I can. It has been a spiritually charged, mentally draining, and physically demanding battle for my family and I like we have never experienced before. And isn't that just 
typical of the sarcoidosis story. There's so much going on here with sarcoidosis, and there are so many impacts beyond the person who has sarcoidosis. Uh, So, you know, in this case, uh, he is saying that uh, he was healthy, and, you know, now it, it is, it's, it has been a spiritually charged, mentally draining, and physically demanding battle. And that is just so true. And and you try to describe to somebody how sarcoidosis changed your life, especially when it hits you from out of left field like that, and you're, you're one of these healthy people. Um, I, I was this kind of a person. Many of the people who have come on the podcast was, was, was this kind of a person. Regular exercise, and again, avid runner, uh, and, and he's shared with me in some subsequent emails we've gone back and forth that, you know, he, he was a good runner. He was running a seven and a half, eight minute mile. And, and he shared that his son is now starting cross country in high school. You know, my kids did that. I just, I find a, a lot of, a lot of his story and mine are the same. So maybe this is why it really talks to me so much. Um, but uh, and, and, you know, now he says he, he can still go about his daily life, but if he can run, he's running like a 12 minute mile and, and his son is leaving him in the dust. And, um, you know, that's just gotta be very, very difficult. Uh, you, you know, see somebody taking on a sport that you love and at, you know, if he's 42 years old, 43, maybe now, uh, you know, he might have been able to gone out, go out and run with his son who's just getting into running. And, and because of sarcoidosis, that's not going to happen. And then on top of all of that, I mean, he was in the ICU. He had heart failure. He was fighting for his life. And at the time, they didn't know what was wrong with his heart. It was only later that they figured out it was cardiac sarcoidosis. Um, Vanderbilt actually wrote up a little article about him for their uh, regular, their in-house magazine, or maybe, you know, maybe their newsletter. Uh, But there is an article about him, and I will, um, this is Kevin Moore, uh, and so I will also put that link in the show notes. But just another story that that really resonates with how sarcoidosis comes in and invades your life and and changes it usually for the worse, uh, and it's different for for all of us, each person individually, which is why we call it the the snowflake disease. So there is a little bit of hope on the horizon because today I have an interview with Dr. Nancy Lynn, a physician and researcher at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and she's working on finding a way to quickly diagnose sarcoidosis and maybe someday uh, with something as simple as a blood test. And she's going to talk about her approach to this during the interview. And Dr. Lin has received a two-year grant for $150,000 from the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research to see if she can take that research to the next level. And she's in an interesting group of young doctors that are our best hope for sarcoidosis. And she so she now is a part of FSR's research fellowship program, which started back in 2018, 
and it supports the research of fellows and builds on the pipeline for our next generation of sarcoidosis researchers. So these, and, and, and I'll talk to her about this during the interviews. You get out of college, you know, you want to do research. She's interested in lung disease, interstitial lung disease, inter, and, and, and she lands on sarcoidosis. And so FSR comes along and says, well, if you want to research sarcoidosis and you want to make a career out of that, we want to help you get going and prime the pump, as it were. So we'll get you going with this FSR fellowship grant, which then provides that opportunity for these what they would call an early stage investigator to develop specialized skills and get direct experience in the field of sarcoidosis. So in the case of Dr. Lin, that means looking at something called microRNA, and she believes she might be able to pinpoint why some people are predisposed to develop sarcoidosis, say if they inhale something, and why other people's bodies either fight it off or don't trigger that immune response, which turns out to be a big negative and does a lot of damage to our bodies. And I will also ask her if sarcoidosis is truly then an autoimmune disease, uh, or if it's an autoinflammatory disease or an inflammatory disease, and how she would characterize it, because all these different terms are out there, and we're all trying to use them interchangeably, and perhaps, at least in my case, uh, only with a modicum of understanding, if you will. So she will get into all of that. Dr. Nancy Lynn is coming up next on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. I feel a zombie just feeding at stumbling Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. And joining me now is Dr. Nancy Lynn, who is at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore doing some research for all of us in sarcoidosis. Dr. Lynn, thank you for joining us. Yeah, definitely. My pleasure to be here. So you are uh, you're working on some exciting stuff, and you recently received a hundred fifty thousand dollar grant from FSR to continue your research. And I'll, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. But the thing that gets me is there's so few people who have sarcoidosis. How in the world did you decide sarcoidosis is what you wanted to study? Yeah, that that's a great question. I think it was a combination of interests and just the environment that that I was in, which is, you know, usually how things happen in life. So I've always really been into lung diseases. Um, you know, I started medical school, of course, I was on a different track, I thought I wanted to do all these different things. But actually kind of being in the hospital, experiencing different patients, experiencing different diseases, really led me down the path of choosing kind of pulmonary diseases to focus on. And really, I think what really interests me is the interstitial lung diseases. Uh, and that's a disease under which sarcoidosis falls as well. 
Um, and what really interests me about sarcoidosis specifically is that it's not just the lungs, you know, although that is the primary focus of sarcoidosis, it involves other organs too. And it's both a lung disease, but also a complex multi-organ disease. Um, and so that really attracted me to sarcoidosis. And then additionally, so much is unknown about sarcoidosis. I think there's a real need for better treatments and, and more research. Um, and so as um, an academic physician, this was really a great space where I felt like I could, I could, you know, clinically contribute to the field as well as um, contribute some research as well. And then I met my mentor uh, at National Jewish Health, Dr. Lisa Meyer, who I really admired from the get-go. And she is, um, you know, a world expert in sarcoidosis. And so it was kind of my background interest in interstitial lung diseases and interested in a multi- systemic pulmonary disease, and then meeting a mentor who could really guide me in this space. So so that's yeah. kind of how I got to where I am. So you just sort of found something with that, that interested you, and you started teasing it out, and the next thing you know, you, you kind of had found your path down the, down the that's right. road to SAR. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for being in, in this space. Yeah. Um, and so when you when you talk about interstitial lung disease, what exactly is that? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, there's a lot of lung disease, diseases out there, you know, that that pulmonologists study. So you have diseases of the airways like asthma and COPD. You hear a lot about those. There's lung cancer when you get lung nodules, um, you know, that are malignant in the lungs. And then you have other lung diseases of the lung tissue, um, and that can be scarring of the lungs. It could be inflammation of the lung tissue. That's not cancer, uh, but some other disease. And we call that group of diseases interstitial lung disease. So basically disease of the lung tissue um, that can be characterized by scarring and inflammation. That's not cancer. Gotcha. Okay. And, and, and sarcoidosis lands smack in the middle of, of all of that. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, now I want to get back to this grant, this $150,000. Uh, and you started, you were at National Jewish Health and uh, life circumstances led you to another highly renowned facility at Johns Hopkins. Yeah. Uh, so you're continuing your research there. You're still seeing patients and you're still working on this, but you're particular area of expertise is genomic biomarkers. That's right. What is what is that? Yeah. So, um, well, I guess starting off with biomarkers. So, you know, right now, the way that we diagnose sarcoidosis officially is that you have to get a biopsy of the lung tissue. Um, and so the idea of a biomarker is that we can find some marker in um, uh, a sample that is less invasive than the, the tissue biopsy, if that makes sense. So whether that's in the blood or in bronchoalveolar lavage, um, which, you know, many people with sarcoidosis have undergone a procedure to get that fluid out of their lungs. 
So, so what you just used a really big term there. Let's right. right. So <laughs> that's that's where you're taking some fluid out of the lungs, like with a needle. Yeah. Well, so you, with a with a um, so usually we diagnose sarcoidosis with a bronchoscopy, yeah. and I describe that as the colonoscopy of the lungs. Right, same thing. You're putting a camera down into the in, into the lungs instead of the colon, uh, but you could take biopsies and you could take some fluid out of the lungs. Now, the way that we really diagnose sarcoidosis right now is you got to get some of that tissue from, from the lungs because, again, it's an interstitial lung disease. The disease of the tissue is sarcoidosis, and you're looking for that characteristic granuloma on pathology. Um, so that's the way that we diagnose sarcoidosis now. So whenever you have a biopsy or a needle, you have risk you know, complications, unfortunately. And unfortunately, our sarcoidosis, um, individuals with sarcoidosis are subjected to that risk because that's how we diagnose sarcoidosis at this point. But biomarkers, the idea of having a biomarker of disease is to avoid or to replace having to do that tissue biopsy and having that the needle and having to actually take a chunk of tissue. So some other marker, whether that's a protein, whether it's a gene, um, and in my case, I study microRNAs, and I'll, I can get more into that here in a little bit. Some other marker that implicates that this person has sarcoidosis without needing to get that tissue. And when you do a bronchoscopy, you know, the, the needle part and the biopsy is really the most harmful part. But you can also get some fluid just from the lungs, you know, not, you don't have to put a needle in you in the, in the lung tissue there. That's a much less dangerous procedure there, just getting a little fluid back from the lungs. Um, and if we can find a marker in that fluid and avoid the biopsy, I think that can prevent a lot of complications for people. And probably even less invasive would be a biomarker in the blood. You know, that's right. kind of what everybody wants or, you know, something that's more easily accessible, even saliva, nasal swab, you know, what have you, um, some other more easily obtainable sample um, and find a marker in there that can indicate, that can just tell us this person has sarcoidosis and that, that way we can bypass the biopsy. So that's kind of the goal of uh, my and other people's biomarker research. So as uh, I'm going to overstate the obvious here, but um, I have yet to have a patient on the podcast who said, yeah, John, I went to my physician because I wasn't feeling well. And they said, oh, you have sarcoidosis. Yeah. You know, it's right. always this months or years long situation yeah. or uh, someone will be diagnosed and then they'll start looking at, oh, you know what? I had that rash on my legs five years ago. And I had sarcoidosis exactly. and I didn't know it. So yeah. you're talking about sarcoidosis in the lungs, but I would assume that if it's in your body anywhere, mm -hmm. if you find it, you find it. Is Am I leaping to something that is not a uh, proper conclusion here? No, that's right. Yeah. In over 90, I'm sure as you've heard, John, in over 90% of cases, people have sarcoidosis in the lungs. And that's why it's usually pulmonologists who treat the disease. But you're right. I mean, People can have it just on the skin, just in the heart, just in the brain, any organ. Um, it could just be isolated to different organs for sure. And you're right. It's it's really hard to, to diagnose. 
Um, absolutely. So let's get into your RNA work then. So yeah. what is it that you are looking at that could be this huge game changer for SARC patients? Yeah. So, you know, I'm really focused on genomics uh, in sarcoidosis. So that's looking at genomics is a big umbrella term for um, really gene research on a large scale. Um, and so, you know, with, I think over the past decades, there's been a lot of interest in the human genome after we sequenced it, you know, I think it was in the nineties, early two thousands. Um, and just a lot of scientific advancement because of the new technologies that we have that basically a computer is able to, you know, you basically in the lab, you're able to. Uh, process a little a little sample of somebody's DNA or RNA, and then from that little sample, you can get a person's entire genome. You know, and that's mm -hmm. so powerful um, that information. Um, and so the idea is that that information in the genome of a sarcoidosis individual, if you take that and compare it to somebody who doesn't have sarcoidosis. It, look for the differences, and those differences may be an explanation for sarcoidosis. Um, maybe identify the kind of underlying genetic etiology and or relate, relatedly offer a biomarker mm -hmm. right, for um, sarcoidosis specifically. But as you can imagine, the challenge of that is that when you have all this data on somebody's genome and it's it's massive, right? The number of genes a person has and, and genetic material is, is overwhelming. Um, whenever you compare two people, whether or not they have sarcoidosis or they don't have sarcoidosis, there's going to be a lot of differences, you know? So it, right. it, there's it, all these other things out there as well. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's diseases and then there's just things that make people different from one another. Um, so being able to design a study that really specifically is trying to tease out what is genetically unique about sarcoidosis is challenging, but it's what we're, we're working on and trying to do. But that's a basic premise of what I'm doing is comparing, um, and I'm looking at the, the, the lung fluid samples focusing on pulmonary at, at this point and hopefully expanding to different organs and uh, move into blood at a later point. But, you know, we really want to be focused in our initial approach. We look at this bronchoalveolar lavage, which is that lung fluid that you get from patients after you do a bronchoscopy <clears throat> and comparing um, the cells that come from that fluid in a sarcoidosis per a person with sarcoidosis um, to that of somebody who does not have sarcoidosis and right. doing uh, a broad um, uh, genome uh, sequencing, we call it genomic sequencing, and I'm sp specifically looking at the genetic marker of microRNAs uh, and seeing if the microRNAs in the sarcoidosis individual is different than that of the, what we call controls, people without sarcoidosis, and then seeing, hey, maybe those microRNAs 
um, can be used in the future to detect sarcoidosis as a biomarker. How do, and, you, how do you look at a microRNA? Is that is that something that you do under a microscope or? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So yeah. this is all lab technology. And, sure. you know, to the, to the point where, you know, you'd have to get like a, you know, to really get down to the technical details, it, it, it would have to be somebody besides me to tell you. But basically what we do is we get these, these cells from the, the lung fluid and then we process it, we process it down. So we, we do, we, there's these, we have these kits that separate um, the RNA from the, the fluid and the RNA contains the microRNAs. And then you have another kit that kind of t- that extracts the microRNAs from the, the RNA that you had before. And then, so it's a series of kind of like, um, it's a series of processing in the laboratory that actually leaves you with the microRNAs at the end of your processing. So mm-hmm. you actually don't need to like, you know, look at the microscope and because you're not going to be able to see it. It's so small, but you use different buffers. You do use different solutions to basically extract the microRNA from your sample. That's that's just amazing stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, so I guess what you wind up with is is something that a computer tells you. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. And and so and so what you're looking for is that one microRNA that only represents sarcoidosis and then if you can find that in a lot of different samples then you can say oh as long as if we look for this then we can say guess what it's sarcoidosis. Yeah, it would be amazing if it was one microRNA but I have to tell you I bet you it'll be a combination. Yeah. Of course. Uh, of course probably several. <laughs> right. So it's going to be orders of magnitude more difficult than what I just described. Yeah, right. But you got the basic idea exactly perfect. Yeah, yeah. So um, how far are you from being able to say, we got this? What is it you know? What is it that you know you don't know? Yeah. Where are you in that research? Right. So, you know, we did what we call a... a preliminary study where we basically had uh, a group of sarcoidosis individuals compared it to people without sarcoidosis, looking at their micro the differences in their microRNAs, and in that group there were about um, almost sixty people with sarcoidosis, and we compared it to about twenty people without sarcoidosis. So, you know. We always want more numbers of people if possible because that just makes the data more truthful. You know, you eliminate the noise of kind of, like I told you, because we're dealing with large amounts of data. So the more data you have, the more likely you're going to get an accurate result. But in that kind of preliminary study, we were able to find seven microRNAs that seemed promising that were different between the two groups. Um, but with science, just one study, you know, with that amount of people is not proof that it's not proof of anything. And so at this point, we're in the process of validating those microRNAs. So basically recruiting another cohort of people with sarcoidosis and those without sarcoidosis to try to reproduce those results. Because, you know, once we're able to reproduce it, 
then it's more likely that these microRNAs really are related to sarcoidosis. So that's where we're at right now. Okay. Well, that sounds like progress. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, to me, um, and if you can, well, if you could dial that in and we could get to a point where we do a blood test and someone says, mm-hmm. oh, you've got sarcoidosis, that would be great. And yeah. for me, you know, I they operated on my spinal cord in order to figure out what was going on. And that was extremely invasive and damaging yeah. and so forth. So if something like that could happen, then right. uh, that would be that would be amazing. So for let sure. me. Let me reverse course just a little bit and say, as as because we know there's we don't know the cause of sarcoidosis, we don't have a cure for sarcoidosis, uh, yeah. and what you're trying to do is get to the diagnosis of sarcoidosis. Right. But if yeah. there is a micro RNA consistent with sarcoidosis, could we then start going in the other direction and start making some conclusions about whether it is um, whether it is genetic? you know, whether it could be passed down from generations or what the yeah. cause of sarcoidosis is there, is there somebody yeah. else, some other researcher who come along and pick that up and says, well, so if we have this finding, then what caused that finding? Exactly. And you know, I think that's the ultimate question in, in sarcoidosis research is, is what causes the disease. And because, you know, that's something that's, that continues to plague the, the community of sarcoidosis both patients who have it and people who study and treat the disease. So we don't have much of an idea of why it happens. We know that, you know, there's something that's going on with the immune system in people with sarcoidosis that is abnormal. There is abnormal inflammation in the lungs in people with sarcoidosis. But what triggers that is really unknown. Is there a genetic component? I think likely there is, but really from the epidemiological research that's been done in the field, it does appear that it's both a combination of genetics and environment. Environment. Yeah, and environment plays a role because um, I'll just give you an example. After the World Trade Center, when a lot of the first responders were exposed to that cloud, that dust cloud, you know, full of, um, metals and it, it it was such a complex environmental exposure, you know, that we still don't 100% know exactly what was in it, but it was a big one-time exposure. And a lot of those first responders went on to develop sarcoidosis. Now, not everybody. So if it was purely an environmental disease, you would think everybody would get it. Um, so there's probably a genetic predisposition for some people to develop that abnormal inflammation of the lungs. But it appeared that that exposure to that cloud dust, whatever was in it, triggered some kind of abnormal immune reaction in the lungs of many individuals um, that eventually led to a sarcoidosis-like disease. So the I think what's really unique about microRNAs, um, so, you know, your genes... Your genes are kind of born with the genes that you're going to have. You know, that comes from your parents and your ancestors. And that's kind of set that genetic code. But there's a lot of regulators in the body that turn on and off genes. And the genes are the blueprint of the proteins that get made in your body. 
Um, and that can, that determines everything basically that functions in your body. So you have these regulators that come in and can kind of tweak the, the, the genes and proteins that are made in your body. And microRNAs are one of those regulators. And what influences microRNAs is, you know, genetics. It's also encoded by your, by, by, by genes and whatnot, but it's also influenced by the environment. Um, so if we are able to find, you know, and we're making progress on these microRNAs associated with uh, sarcoidosis, I think it is, you know, you can draw some genetic information, like, you know, genes involve, um, target specific genes that are involved and associated with those microRNAs that may be important in sarcoidosis. But also, I think that opens the question of what environmental conditions are also causing those microRNAs to be active. Um, so I guess you asked a simple question and this is a more complicated answer. So I think, yes, it can help us find a genetic etiology of the disease. However, uh, microRNAs are molecules that are also influenced by the environment. So it could be indicative of something in these people's environment as well. Um, it's complex, you know, it, yeah. Well, yeah, there's a, so, so no, but I get it. And, and it makes so much sense is you're, you're walking around, you've got this predisposition to sarcoidosis if you are exposed to a certain toxin of some kind or, or, right. uh, 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 insult of some kind. If I can, isn't that, isn't that a clinical term It's like something comes into yeah. your body and that's an insult. So, so the, the, the dust at the world trade center, which I was there six weeks after covering it, but oh, I, I doubt yeah. there's any dust around then. Uh, I mean, yeah. it was still very much a, you know, there's still smoke coming out of the ruins and everything, but, um, uh, but, but so that, that, that comes into your body. And if you're then, if you're predisposed to not be able to defend against it, you get yeah. sarcoidosis and the person next to you doesn't that all that all makes sense to me uh yeah. and with with all these multitude of complicating factors that would that would decide whether or not you're predisposed right right with that is so that is so complicated um and so you get it I, i'm curious do you think sarcoidosis is an autoimmune or an auto-inflammatory disease? It seems to yeah. be like the, the, the world is split on that question. Yeah, you know, and there's research that's split on that question too, because I, I, in general, when I talk with patients, I usually characterize it as an, I call it an inflammatory disease. So it's like, um, you know, your immune system is responsible for creating inflammation in your body. And it, and it does that with the purpose of getting rid of whatever foreign antigen is, is attacking your body, right? So it just kind of amps everything up, gets rid of a foreign invader. That's its job. Um, now, that's going on in sarcoidosis too, in, you know, in the lungs and different organs, but it's being done kind of inappropriately um, to some kind of unknown trigger. Now, if we are, if we find out through our research, you know, years from now that that trigger is actually some protein that your body produces itself, you know, 
um, then yes, it will. That will be a, a auto. Then you can say sarcoidosis is an autoimmune disease. But I think the prevailing theory right now is that trigger actually comes from outside the body. You know, um, just like the World Trade Center people, that that whatever trigger, whatever was in that dust cloud, came inside the body. The the body had an appropriate immune reaction but then it got inappropriate as it just kept going and going and going and couldn't wind down and that's what caused the inflammation in the in in the lungs or you know whatever organ um and i you know i don't know if john you guys have talked about beryllium disease here on your podcast but um beryllium disease is uh beryllium is a metal that's used in um several industries like nuclear weapons processing and aerospace, the aerospace industry. It's a, it's a really lightweight metal. So it's very attractive for aerospace engineering, if you can imagine, because if you want to build a spaceship, you want something that's really light. And it just has a lot of um, qualities that make it a, a very um, good metal to, to use in hmm. uh, many different situations. But when you grind beryllium, it goes into the lungs um, it's, and it creates a very fine dust that that you'll breathe in. And once it gets into your lungs, the beryllium causes a disease that's indistinguishable from pulmonary sarcoidosis. It looks exactly the same. So this is a disease mm. that's analogous to pulmonary sarcoidosis, and it's caused by something from the outside, you know, beryllium. Beryllium. I've never, I've I've heard of beryllium, but I've never heard of beryllium disease. Yeah. Yeah. And some people, they found the genetic, it's not a mutation, but it's a genetic, it's a, uh, it's a different gene sequence that some people have on their immune cells that predisposes them to getting this, um, beryllium lung disease. So if you have that kind of genetic sequence that predisposes you and you encounter just a little bit of beryllium, more less so than, you know, say somebody without that genetic sequence, you're more likely to get the disease. Hmm. And so that that's also another model that we use to predict, you know, to kind of explain most likely what's going on in sarcoidosis. So something like beryllium disease, it's not really an autoimmune disease, right? Because it's, um, it's not like your autoimmune to me means your body atta- attacking itself, but it is your body responding inappropriately to something in the environment. That is amazing. I, I just want to throw something out at you here. Uh, I have had a growing number of people contact me because of the, the reach of the podcast who yeah. are endurance athletes. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden come down with some version of sarcoidosis. Yeah. Right. Uh, enough so that it's starting to be more like because like I was the odd, I was the outlier, right? Because I was a marathon runner and yeah, uh, you know, I I I was particularly good at it, but um, but I was able to push myself until I was just about falling down, or in some cases okay. actually falling down. So so I was pushing my body beyond whatever it probably wanted me to do. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's probably a component of endurance athletes that I see quite often. 
And yeah. so now I'm having more and more people contact me say, yeah, I'm a cyclist and I have the same problem. I'm a, I would, you know, was a hiker, but not just a hiker. They were doing, you know, the, the Grand Canyon, you know, and and trying to do it at pace. Um, and, and all of a sudden these things started happening. Could, yeah. could endurance athleticism impact these these rna things that you were talking about or am i just am i just yeah. seeing a causation and not a correlation not a causation situation here you know i think that's a great question and something that i'm you know i don't think anyone has been able to investigate or fully answer you know mm-hmm. how does being an endurance athlete being at that high level of athleticism um and i guess it also varies on you know kind of what you're doing right if you're doing this at high altitude versus kind of sea level stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're doing distance running versus kind of short, more short, like weightlifting or something like that, you know, like more short bursts of energy, um, how that changes your microRNA expression. MicroRNAs, they're regular, they're regulators of gene expression, but they're relatively new in science. You know, we've known about genes for, a long time at this point, but microRNAs are definitely a, a a more new discovery, a new molecule, and a new science. So there's still a lot that we don't know about what microRNAs do, just to kind of people in general. You know, do athletes have different ones than than other people? You know, I think that's that's a good question. And you know, could that contribute to, um, you know, like you're saying, a higher incidence of endurance athletes with sarcoidosis, I think that could possibly, that could, you know, definitely be a question that, that unfortunately we don't have an answer to just yet. But it's not a preposterous um, idea, a hypothesis, yeah. if you will. I mean, I don't know. No, it's I just, so. I, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just people, these are people who stress their body more than the average person. Could that right. have an impact? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, you know, we're, um, we've got a group of cyclists that's sort of growing now with, uh, watching the podcast and, uh, and doing some fundraising for FSR and so forth. So we can fund your research, right? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So just keep it rolling. So, So do you think that there will ever be a cure for sarcoidosis? I do. I think so. I, I really do. And I think we're really making a lot of headway in, in our research, um, you know, not just specific to me and the people that I've worked with, but, you know, at these conferences that we attend and, um, you know, the community of sarcoidosis researchers. Now, it's not huge, um, but people are doing really amazing things from really basic science research, doing a lot of animal models. You know, we have, you know, starting to get really good animal models of sarcoidosis too, um, all the way to kind of the clinical side of clinical research, you know, looking at uh, different outcomes and different demographics and, um, you know, the question of, you know, what's going on with endurance athletes, you know, that that could be also on that end of the spectrum as well. Um, There's researchers all along that spectrum, and I think we're really making progress in the field. Um, When do I think we will have a cure? that I can't predict. I, I hope it's sooner than later. Right. But I do think, you know, it's just 
making little discoveries, you know, whether it's a biomarker that then somebody takes and then we do further research to figure out what's the mechanism underneath it, what's causing it, like you were asking earlier. Um, or if it's, you know, something from the clinical research who realize this group of people, you know, this profession or this hobby is more likely to get it. Now, why is that and digging deeper there? But I think a lot of people are having great ideas um, and there's a lot of movement in, in the field. And I hope that continues because um, if it does, I think we will have a cure. Well, that that would be amazing. Um, but finding out a way to um, to diagnose quickly would be would be right. fantastic. Right. Yeah. And and then depending upon what organ you have it in your body, if if you could diagnose it um with just the blood test would be yeah. amazing That's too. Cool. You know, if you'd have checked my lungs, I'd my lungs would have been fine, you know. Right. <laughs> I have neuro, right. sorry. So, but if you could have done a blood test, but uh so but you have all these what is it, seven hundred, eight hundred rare diseases that are out there now. This you mentioned this beryllium disease. Yeah. Um uh, like how many people have beryllium disease compared to sarcoidosis? I would think fewer. Yeah, much less because you have to have that beryllium exposure. And, you know, beryllium is is not used very often in, in just kind of day-to-day manufacturing. Day-to-day, yeah. yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's usually, but it's pretty, um, uh, it's mostly government work. They, they do a lot of beryllium and then like the aerospace, like I mentioned, um, so because of that, it's a much smaller population that has that disease. But having said that, I always ask, you know, when people come in, I meet them for the first time, whether they know about beryllium, have ever, if they've worked with beryllium, or if they, you know, know anybody who's worked with beryllium, I do think that's an important question to ask because people, people do out there, you know, mm-hmm. and you definitely don't want to miss that um, when talking with people. Mm-hmm. I would think that's a question most physicians would not know to ask. Yeah, right. Because it is, like you said, it's it's really rare. It's very rare. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anything else you want to add about your research or where it's going or or any conclusions? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, thanks for this opportunity. We're really excited, um, you know, and we're focused on finding a better way to diagnose people with uh, a a less invasive biomarker. Uh, but another thing we're trying to do with these microRNAs and, you know, a real clinical need that we, we are trying to address is also using biomarkers to figure out who's going to get the severe disease. Because um, as you know, their sarcoidosis can be something that you, you have and then you just forget about and you live a long life without ever having to worry about it at all. And then you have disease, which really requires a lot of management. Um, and you have refractory disease, um, sometimes that even leads to things like transplant, right? And, and unfortunately, some people do die from the disease. So I think as clinicians, um, figuring out who we can identify using biomarkers to identify early on who's going to get bad disease is really important and something that we just don't have. We have some, there have been markers that have been proposed in sarcoidosis, um, but they're not, they're not great. They're, and they're not a hundred percent, you know, 
Uh, but I think looking at these genomic biomarkers and trying to find a way to kind of help clinicians determine early on, you know, who is at risk of progressing uh, will also really, really help to manage the disease better. Yeah, that that was a question that I, I overlooked, but because sometimes people get sarcoidosis and it goes away and for the rest of us, yeah. it you know, it persists and you have to have lifelong treatment options. Right. And, you know, sometimes it's confusing for people because you'll go to a doctor who appropriately has learned that sarcoidosis is not something that you got to worry about because, you know, in many cases, that's true. It just kind of goes away and you don't necessarily need to, you know, you don't necessarily need to manage it actively, although we always do recommend monitoring. Um, But, you know, that person would not be served well if they happen to be the person who's going to develop severe disease, right? That can have a, a huge uh, negative impact on their life if they were told that by somebody and it turned out not to be true. So finding tools to help mm-hmm. clinicians um, and people with sarcoidosis just mm-hmm. live better lives. Right. Sure. And you spend you spend part of your time in the, the clinic actually treating patients and part of your time in the lab doing research. Is that right? Yeah. I do both and really I'm passionate about both. I really, I think really what motivates me to do the research is um, having a face to the disease that I'm researching, right? And um, forming that connection and relationship with um, with people who have sarcoidosis. It's, it's actually really special and it really motivates me to want to, you know, do even more research on the disease. So I, I definitely like to do both. Yeah. Great. Well, Dr. Lin, thank you so much for your research and for taking the time to join me on the podcast today. Of course. Yes. Thank you for having me. It was really fun to talk with you, John. I feel like a zombie just feeding at stumbling. All right, so some great takeaways from Nancy's discussion. Uh, We may be able to eventually diagnose SARC with a blood test or at least a less invasive means. The clues as to why some people get it and others don't probably buried somewhere in our body's microRNA, and that sarcoidosis is a disease that is inflammatory in nature, but it would only be considered an autoimmune disease if the body's immune response to an insult or an invader of some kind, like inhaling something, is more hurtful than helpful or perhaps not needed at all, but still happens. And finally, Dr. Lin believes that a cure for sarcoidosis will one day be found. So thanks again to Dr. Nancy Lin for her work and for taking the time to share with us here on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. The official Sark Fighter song is called Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band, The White Hot Lizards. Hear Mark's story behind the lyrics in episode 12. I normally release every other Monday as I'm speaking today. Yes, he is there. My trusty dog, Dougal, is curled up on the chair in my office. Dougal makes my life so much better. 
And the backstory to the founding for the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is Episode 11 with Andrea and Redding Wilson. Don't forget to follow the Sark Fighter on Facebook and Instagram. I'm on Peloton as Sark Fighter. My cycling blog, Carl and the Cyclist, has a section called Cycling with Sarcoidosis. If you are new here and just trying to figure out what Sark is, try listening to Episode 2 with Dr. Simon Hart. My story is Episode 1. Please send me an email at carlinagency at gmail.com and let me know if it's okay to share your thoughts with listeners. Uh, and there's also a link in the show notes. Until next time, keep fighting. Learn to suffer, you feel pain someday. Learn endurance, your strength will fade away. Dead man walking, trying to keep up the pace. Dead man walking, counting.